Welcome to Rethink, the future of skilled nursing, a podcast from Skilled Nursing News. I'm your host, Alex Spanko. Before we get into my conversation with Chad Bogar, CEO of SB2, I'd like to thank our podcast sponsor today, Point Click Care. Success isn't just getting to PDPM, it's about being ready for what comes next. Learn how you can prepare to go confidently into quality-based care with Point Click Care. With waves of closures hitting markets from Massachusetts to Wisconsin, Medicaid reimbursement pressures have taken center stage in the skilled nursing world this year, as providers plead with state governments to ensure that daily Medicaid rates match the cost of caring for these vulnerable residents. But even in areas where rates are sufficient, providers may find themselves hitting roadblocks when helping residents qualify for Medicaid in the first place, and the costs can be staggering. As founder and CEO of the law firm SB2, Chad Bogar has dedicated his career to ensuring that residents receive the Medicaid coverage to which they're entitled, and by extension, that operators are paid fairly for the services they provide. I recently spoke with Chad to learn more about the strategies he uses when representing operators in legal battles over Medicaid coverage, as well as how providers can survive when facing hundreds of thousands of dollars in unpaid Medicaid reimbursements. Here's our conversation. Chad, thanks so much for uh, joining me today. Uh, glad to have you on the podcast. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Let's just get right into it. I know in covering the skilled nursing industry, a lot of focus has been on Medicare because things are changing in Medicare. But one of the things that I think people miss is just the role of Medicaid. I know people on the ground know it, investors know it, but it's just not as well known. You know, I'm a younger person, and when I talk to people about what I do, people are always shocked when they find out that Medicaid is actually the number one payer for skilled nursing facilities in the country, which, you know, always kind of blows their mind a little bit. So, you know, what are some of the big, I know you Medicaid is a state level thing, but what are some of the big Medicaid trends in nursing homes that people, operators, investors, people on the ground really need to be watching on? And then, you know, based on your work and based on your contacts with providers in the field? Well, there's really not, it's kind of a systemic approach, if you will, or a linear approach. You know, I'll give you an example. Today, I received a call from one of our other attorneys who had had a phone call with a prospective client. And right now at one facility, this particular organization has a million dollars in outstanding Medicaid pending. Okay. So there is the upfront Medicaid issue. Okay. Then, which is getting folks qualified. Okay. Then there is the back end, which I I woke up to emails this morning, you know, dealing with a state, and I won't name the state, (laughs) just to keep everything confidential, but, you know, a state sitting on, you know, massive amounts of claims. And what I mean by that, you know, Medicaid benefits that have been approved, but not paid. Okay. So that, that, you know, the facility submits their claims after the approval, and some of these are going on a year old. Okay. And with no end in sight, then you have other issues in between. You have recoupments where, you know, states come in years later and try to take monies back. So, you know, and we can talk about that. We can talk about, you know, the reimbursement rate issue that we're dealing with in Illinois. You know, a lot of states don't recognize that or a lot of providers don't recognize that states have an obligation. Okay to make sure that their Medicaid rate is approved by CMS. I mean, that's our position, okay? So that's kind of a long answer to to your question, but that's, and, you know, when you boil it all down, Medicare is great, okay? I understand that, but it only pays for a certain period of time, and yes, it pays, you know, a lot of money, 
and providers don't make a lot of money on Medicaid, but I've seen facilities with Medicaid residents with three, four hundred thousand dollar balances. So, you know, and with no end in sight. Yeah. So, if if you have I know there's evidence, you know, that we, that we report on these reports that come out that always say, oh, median skilled nursing margin is zero or some of the lower quartile ones, their operating margin is negative six percent. So, you know, how does a building even survive when they have four hundred thousand to a million dollars of outstanding Medicaid payments? I don't know. I mean, that, that's a great question. You know, and it's not just when you have that. I mean, if that's just one resident. OK, what happens when you put them all together? And, you know, the interesting thing is it, there's a fix to this. I mean, CMS, I know a lot of folks aren't fans of CMS, okay, for whatever reason, from a survey enforcement side or, or what have you. I'm a big fan of CMS in regard to what we do. I mean, the rules and regulations that have been set up to help get people on Medicaid, they're, they're tremendous, okay? The problem is it's, it's an issue of education, and I, and I talk about this every time I do a presentation. Education is the key to this, is learning what CMS has set up, okay? And when I say this, I mean avoiding these huge cases, okay? Avoiding having, you know, a facility with $2 million in Medicaid pending, okay? The key to all of this is education and knowing what CMS has set up for our benefit, knowing that the federal courts have said that what, I mean, all this federal stuff trumps all the state stuff, okay? And then educating, not then we come in, we educate the clients. Then we have to educate the caseworkers. Then we have to educate the administrative law judges or hearing officers. And it goes all the way up the line. And yes, that'll take years sometimes. But that's that's kind of the the approach that we take in terms of, you know, how do we deal with, how do people, how are our clients going to stay in business? You know, and my response is we have to change the way we do things by through education. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And one of the things, so I became acquainted with you because I saw a presentation that you did down in Louisville at the American College of Healthcare Administrators Conference back in late March. And one of the things that I took away from your presentation was just how many protections there are for residents and then by extension operators in, to- in terms of getting on Medicare, in terms of receiving those benefits. Because the way that when I report from 40,000 feet and we hear about reimbursement pressures and occupancy pressures, it's always the Medicaid rate is too low. We can't do it. It's really difficult. And then seeing your presentation and looking at it from the different perspective of, oh, this is what people are actually entitled to. That was kind of eye opening for me personally. So I'd be interested to hear a little more about that. And then we can go into the reimbursement issue, the bigger one. Right. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's, it's if it's my nature or, or what, but, uh, you know, I'm incredibly hopeful when I look at these things and especially having done it for as long as we've done it. Before we started our webcast, you know, a client sent an email and said, hey, I used one of the things that you said to use. And, you know, it was struck out three or four times before that. And then we appealed it. We fought it out. And now they're using it. And people are agreeing. In other words, there isn't pushback anymore. So let's say, for example, I mean, one of the greatest regulations that CMS, I feel, has given our clients on the ground level to qualify residents is what we call the assistance regulation. If you ask for assistance from your county, you know, and this is CMS saying, if you ask for assistance, 
you're entitled to assistance, okay? And assistance in doing what? Obtaining documents, spending down excess resources, okay? You know, we have been pushing that particular regulation for years. When you go into a new state, of course, that state has never seen it. They don't know what you're talking about. They say, no, 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 it's your responsibility. You have to do it. So, you know, that regulation now in states where we've been pushing it is a regular accommodated thing. It's standard practice now, whereas three or four years ago, no one believed it. Everyone said we were crazy, that you couldn't do that. And CMS goes on and talks about other things, how, you know, applications can tend for no longer than 45 days. Okay. I mean, they have, you know, the states have to be doing things to push these applications along. And if you're asking for assistance and the states have to do other things, for example, asset verification searches to help show that these people are qualified or not qualified. When you put all of those regulations together, it really is amazing what's out there and what can be done. But when you go into a new state, you know, like Massachusetts, where they've never seen this, where no one's ever litigated it, it's hard. Okay. It's hard at first, but then you just have to keep moving, keep pushing. And, you know, I often don't think that the state is intentionally being, here's what I think happens, if you don't mind. I mean, I don't mean to ramble on. What I think happens, I think the states have pressures too. And so their biggest pressure is this, okay? And I don't know where I saw this reported recently, but CMS will come in and do an audit. And they will audit and they will say, you shouldn't have granted Medicaid benefits for X, Y, and Z for, you know, and sometimes the numbers are substantial. I've seen 30 million, 49 million. Sometimes when you're on the acute side, you're talking 100 million. I mean, it's a lot of money. So I think the states push back because, you know, if they let that money out the door, the Fed dollars out the door, the Fed match on the Medicaid, then there's a big problem, right? CMS is going to come in and take it back. That's what I feel is really going on. I don't feel that it's this intentional thwarting of trying, you know, I mean, and maybe I'm wrong. And sometimes I have, you know, I question, you know, what I'm saying right now is, well, wait a second, in this state, this seems like it's almost intentional, but I don't really feel that. I think that there's this fear that if we spend these dollars and we get caught, I mean, CMS just comes in and takes it back. So, you know, that's kind of my long-winded answer to a, a very short question. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't apologize. <laughs> this is all good detail. And one of the things that I find as a reporter on this beat is that Medicaid issues are, I think, really underreported because there's almost there's kind of this feeling of just resignation about it. You know, we, we write a lot about PDPM and Medicare because there's this sense. And I think the reason that it's so popular, it, in addition to the fact that it's just a new regulation that's coming in and people are curious about it is that with PDPM, there's a sense that, okay, there's something that I can do proactively. There are strategies that I can use to maximize my dollars, get paid for the care that I'm providing, and keep my doors open. With Medicaid, it just kind of seems like it's like the weather almost. Like it's it's going to happen and we can't change it. And we're just going to, you know, deal with it the way that it is. But I think it's interesting to hear that there are ways to do it. But I think the other challenge too is just how much variation there is. You know, how does an operator who has facilities across multiple states really wrap their heads around Medicaid? And, you know, what are some strategies for them to kind of succeed in Medicaid when they enter a new state or if they have five different states and they're dealing with five different Medicaid populations? Well, you bring up several interesting points. 
Okay. And Medicaid is incredibly complicated. I mean, it's not just level of care versus financial need. Okay. There is a lot more that goes into it than just those two things. I think the reason why Medicaid is looked at the way that it's looked at is because no one's ever pulled back the layers and said, what does CMS say about this? What really are the residents' rights? I call them resident rights, okay? What protections has CMS created for these residents? They are substantial. I mean, you know, residents on Medicaid. Resident gets, you know, for some reason, the state decides that they're going to discontinue benefits. File an appeal. If you timely file an appeal, those residents stay on Medicaid, okay? Residents' application pins for so long, as we, you know, I remember when I first came up with the litigation theory that was used in Illinois years ago, I mean, people thought, I, I mean, I had no chance. There was no way because it had never been done before. And thankfully, one client let me try a particular state. And it was with 20-some residents, if I recall correctly, 23 or 25. All those residents were approved. Okay. We didn't even get, and, I, and that was the first time that a client had ever let me file anything in federal court. And I had been begging for that for years. Okay. And I was saying, we have to try this. We have to try this. And so it happened. So, and then you have the second part of your question. Okay. What does a large provider do? A large operator. Okay. You know, that's not so bad because why? Well, because the federal courts have told us that CMS and their regulations control, I mean, they trump everything on the state level that's contrary to what CMS has said, that conflicts with whatever CMS has said. Now, you have great regulations in some states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, even Illinois, okay, where you're at. I mean, there are some great regulations that, that go above and beyond what CMS has given us, even in New Jersey, okay? But for the most part, there are regulations that conflict with what or what their policies. Lots of times they're not even regulations. Lots of times they're just policies in a policy manual that someone has put together at the department level, you know, and said, okay, here's how we're going to do things. And we come in and we say, no, you can't do that. We did that in North Carolina when it came to resident patient liability and how that's counted and how you can handle that when it's being misappropriated. So it's knowing you have to know what your rights are on the federal level. What has CMS granted to us? CMS, I feel, has, has created these rights because, and, I, and you heard me say this during my presentation, I'm sure, in Louisville a couple of weeks ago, that you know, we as a group, in my opinion, take care of the second most vulnerable population group in our society, behind infants and toddlers and what have you. I mean, what we do is substantial, okay? And so, and CMS, I feel, has recognized that by giving our clients, by giving those, you know, the providers and the residents, all goes through the residents, really, but by making sure that they're taken care of, that, that they have a place that is going to be financially viable to provide the services that need to be provided. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. And that's something that I think, you know, all providers or, you know, 90% of them, 99% of them, that's at the end of the day, what they want. And that's what they want to make sure that their residents get. Now, to your point, to go back to Illinois, I wanted to dig in a little bit about this because Illinois, 
in addition to being the state where I live and the state where skilled nursing news is based is also, it frequently comes up whenever you hear people talking about, you know, states that you want to operate in. Illinois always generates groans. Illinois always generates gnashing of teeth and everyone gets upset and they're like, I I don't want to operate in Illinois. But of course, I know a lot of great providers in Illinois who I speak to and who I've met with. And you recently scored a victory in Illinois about the Medicaid rates. And I wanted to get a little deeper into that. So if you can kind of walk through how that came about and if that is replicable in other places. Sure. Illinois is, you know, it all started when I would ask to speak a few years ago. And we spoke on a topic, just all kinds of different topics. Uh, MCOs we talked about. And but one of the things we talked about are long, were long pending applications. And we brought the original suit in Illinois that dealt with all these long pending applications, but we went a step further. And we also, our lawsuit that we filed on behalf of several providers, and then it was joined by, I think, up to 13 or 14 providers. We also said, hey, you're not paying claims timely. CMS has a regulation that claims must be paid within 360, a year, 365 days. Okay. And then that lawsuit, as we were doing it, then there was a subsequent lawsuit brought. And, but it all started right there. Okay. With, and how it started is we are, I feel very fortunate for this because I think it, it's a model that will work across the, the country. Okay. We have a group of providers that are all in these various lawsuits together and this subsequent lawsuit that, that you're talking about. Where, you know, we, CMS has regulations that talk about when the daily Medicaid rate or how often the daily Medicaid must be reviewed. Our position in the suit was that it had, it, that the state hadn't been, you know, just simply hadn't been doing what they were supposed to do, submitting it to CMS. Okay. And so we filed it. It pinned, you know, the state filed a motion to dismiss, which is, you know, what they should do. And, you know, thankfully, the her honor came back in that particular case and said, you know, listen, you know, I think there's something here. I'm going to, you know, dismiss, you know, the motion to dismiss or a large part of it. And it's going to proceed going forward. So that, you know, what we're doing is challenging, you know, the rate that's in place right now. And that's where that's at right now. And I know, you know, historically, I, I believe you mentioned that in Illinois, the rate itself had not been increased since 1994. That's what our that's within the lawsuit. Yeah, that's incredible. How does something like that happen? You know, how how does a state not raise? I know Illinois has its own financial problems, and I know that you know they they were I believe in 2017 they were in the midst of a bigger lawsuit where the state comptroller basically said I don't you know there's not enough money to pay these claims. But how does that even happen over the course of 25 years? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's in again. I don't think it's intentional. I just think it's providers not knowing fully what their rights are. And if the providers don't get together and do something, okay, then it won't typically happen. Okay. That's what has to happen is, and that's why Illinois has been unique compared to the other states that we operate in is you have a group of, you know, a group that said, listen, we need to fix this. So, you know, it's just like the Medicaid regulations that we were talking about, okay? The reason that happens is because no one takes those regulations and enforces them. And so, you know, if if the county's just sitting on applications for a year, a year and a half, or they're not, you know, processing approved applications for 
sometimes two or three years, that's only because we don't know what we can do. I mean, you know, the provider has a right, the resident has a right to have his or her claims paid. So until someone brings that up, then and enforces that right, it just remains stagnant. That, that's what I feel happens. I don't know if it has anything to do with, I mean, I have no idea if it has anything to do with, with fiscal issues or, you know, any intent. I don't think so. I think it's more about us knowing through education what we have a right to do, what we have at our disposal, you know, and until we use those. Now, and I'm just digressing here, but there, you know, we were, uh, I was talking to a prospective client about doing, you know, something, you know, similar with regard to a host of long pending applications, something similar that we had done in Illinois. And I said, you know, listen, we, we've done this in this state a few times. And, you know, the prospective client was like, well, wait a second, I'm not sure that I want to do that. I'm worried about retaliation, things of that nature. So maybe that plays into it a little bit. I've never seen that. You know, I've never seen anything that even remotely, you know, approaches some sort of retaliation for trying to enforce the rights that CMS has given us. So, you know, that's that's where I'm at on that. So I did also want to ask, you know, our listeners are skilled nursing executives, investors, people who do have a financial stake in it, as well as, you know, building level administrators. If they're listening right now and this stuff might sound familiar to them in terms of delays in applications, trouble getting people qualified, delayed payments, you know, what can they do in their local practice, in their local communities to affect this kind of change? You know, does it require hiring a lawyer or is it just as simple as a couple of, you know, buildings that have similar problems banding together and going to the government and saying, hey, what's up? Yeah, it's multiple approaches. I went to a Jesuit university, and I, I had a Jesuit professor that would always say that education is the slow process of disillusionment, okay? <laughs> and so I love that, okay? And that is the foundation of what we do. What I do with all the webcasts and the, you know, and everything is I believe it's my job as these folks as lawyer to make it so that they don't need me, okay? And that's through education. I say that every place I speak, Okay. How does that happen? Well, if I'm having issues in Florida with my providers or I'm having issues in Illinois or New York or Texas or what have you, I have to educate folks and say, how are we going to do things differently? Okay. And so that's where it starts is on that ground level. And you, you know, I have clients that have great Medicaid representatives or, or you know, whatever you want, VPs of, of recycle, uh, you know, income or whatever it is. Okay. Revenue cycle. That's it. You know, that oversee all of this. And so those folks get trained and then they train the folks down below in states where you have a significant problem where let's say the Medicaid rate has not been reviewed for 20 years. That's when you want to get together with your other providers and you don't necessarily want to shut out the association. Okay. You know, but I sometimes feel, I mean, there's not a dichotomous relationship with the associations and what we do. I think it's more of a, you know, I mean, dialectical now where we bring everyone together and we say, okay, here's how we're going to do this. Because, you know, I mean, a lot of times folks will say, well, I don't know if we should do this because we have this lobbying going on and we're doing this and we're doing that. But in the meantime, I'm about to go under. I mean, you know, if I'm a provider, you know, I need to get these things fixed so that, so that's my recommendation is, you know, on the day-to-day application side, 
less do the training, less bring in folks that can do the training and, and get that taken care of. And then on the bigger issues, let's get together as a group. And, we'll, and because it's hard, I mean, for, you know, skilled facilities don't have the revenue stream. It's just a reality of an acute provider, okay, or acute providers. You know, so, I mean, if they can bring several, you know, providers together and say, okay, here's what it's going to cost us to litigate this or to do the things that we need to do, let's all chip in. That's how I think it works. And then everyone's in it together. They feel, and then there's less of this idea of possible retaliation. So that's my recommendation is it has to start with the education and then getting together and saying, okay, we're going to do something as a group and here's what we're going to do. Yeah. Well, look, Chad, we're bumping up against the end of our time here. So I think I'm going to take that opportunity to uh, let that be the closing thought. If anyone out there is listening about what they can do, call up some of your competitors and see if you can uh, maybe band together. That sounds great. I appreciate <laughs> the opportunity to, to have me on. This has been fun. Thanks so much, Chad. It's been fun talking with you. Who knew talking about Medicaid could be so much fun? <laughs> Absolutely. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, Chad. You too. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of Rethink, the future of skilled nursing. For more news and insights on the skilled nursing industry, subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters at skillednursingnews.com. I'm Alex Banco, and this has been a production of Aging Media Network, Chicago, Illinois.